Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with our newly minted relationship with Sate Corporate Training. After 18 months and hundreds of conversations with the leaders, innovators, and the movers and shakers in our city, two things have become abundantly clear. The future of work has arrived, and it always has been all about the people. So whether you're an individual looking to upskill or an organization looking to reskill an entire division, SAIT has the team, the curriculum, and more importantly, the advisors to partner with you to build what you need to adapt for the road ahead. Do yourself a favor and take the time to learn a little bit more. Check them out at www.sate.ca slash corporate training. And more importantly, give them a call, have a consultation, and find out what SAIT can do for you. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to Mr. Jeff Loomis. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. You are the CEO. Well, you're the executive director, actually, at Momentum. And I'm going to be honest, what often happens to me on the show, I get introduced to people and someone's like, oh, do you know about such and such? And I will always be quick to say, no, I don't. And I'm excited to learn more. And that was definitely the case when I heard about Momentum. I think it was actually Craig over at uh, SATE at their corporate training program that uh, introduced me to kind of what you, who you guys are and what you're about. But let's kind of start off on the elevator ride of, uh, we just shot in, we got 30 floors to go. Uh, Jeff, good to meet you. Tell me about Momentum and we'll pick up our conversation from there. Yeah, so Momentum, we're a social profit organization that works to connect people living on lower incomes to economic opportunities. And we do that in three key ways. We work with people to get better jobs. That's where we do a ton of work with SAIT uh, in some of our employment training programs. And we work with people to create their own job by starting a business. And then we work with people to be able to manage and save their money so that they can really uh, move forward financially. How long you got, how long you guys been how, how long you guys been around? So we are celebrating our 30th anniversary this year in Calgary. Nice. So it's kind of a milestone year for us. We started in 1991 doing trades training in partnership with SAIT from the very beginning. Oh, nice. Uh, okay, right on. And so we have a, a now fairly long history and we're completely focused on Calgary. So we are a Calgary-based community organization. You beat me to my next question if this is part of a, of a series of offices like yours, but you guys are born and bred and started in Calgary and... And your roots were deep, like, I'm just curious, was this started from a nonprofit, like government funded or government led perspective? Or was this a group of individuals that came, that came together and said, which is often a Calgary story, we see a problem, let's, let's, let's solve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were, I'd say, best way to describe it is a startup social enterprise that mm-hmm. um, we started with no initial funding. Uh, we were started by a group of people that were all connected to the Mennonite Church. So originally, we were actually MCC Employment Development, which is the connected to the Mennonite Church. And it was a group of people that identified Calgary was in an economic downturn in the early 1990s. Hmm. Uh, sounds sounds, really sounds, strangely, sounds strangely familiar, yeah. Jeff. <laughs> Very similar to our current context. <laughs> yeah. uh, unemployment was over 10% at that time. And um, these people recognized that we have that challenge in our community and there was a lot of people that were really struggling with employment and wanted to do something about it, but uh, had no money and approached uh, the person that became our founder, uh, Walter Hosley, who started it, came up with the initial idea of focusing on trades and focusing on trades training for new Canadians and Indigenous people in our community Hmm. and uh, went and kind of found the money to get the program going and then grew from there. And now, 30 years later, we have almost 20 programs and we're an organization of almost $10 million. Nice $10 million operating budget. 
and originally focused on new Canadians or you know marginalized groups or groups that maybe had just that a little bit extra of a barrier to get in. Has that been the underpinning for the organization over the years, or has it really broadened out to still be focusing on those groups but be more inclusive? Or do you guys really lean in on, on specific groups that maybe have more hurdles to get across? Just to be yeah, the whole core to our work is focusing on people living on lower income, so it's struggling okay. economically. Um, but it, that would be anyone. So we do work okay. with people born in Canada, uh, people new to Canada, lots of single parents, uh, lots of people maybe with disabilities, um, but that are still able to engage in the, in the labor market. So yeah, pretty inclusive. The common thread is that people are struggling economically. When you say lower income and you talk about struggling economically, I think it's also good to give perspectives. You know, you live in the world that you live in and you know what you know and you tend to associate with other people that are a similar level. I think it's also really important to understand when you say lower income, like what, what does that mean or how can we define that with maybe, do you have numbers and can we, can we put a yeah. parameter around that to help the audience understand yeah, so what the, we're really talking about? The longest term measure used in Canada is called the low income cutoff. Um, and so the low income cutoff in Calgary, because it is sensitive to... Uh, mm. the cost of living in a local area. Low-income cutoff in Calgary for a single person is about $25,000 annually. And for a family okay. of four, it's around $44,000. Um, and the federal government actually just announced we are moving as a country to a, a new measure that will be sort of our consistent measure um, moving forward. Um, and it, But it won't be drastically different than the, okay. the numbers of the low-income cutoff. So if we went to Toronto or we went to Vancouver where, you know, I'm just, just simply from a cost of living, from a housing perspective, I'm not talking about food or any of those others that maybe will be more or slightly, but would that be a significantly different number? And others, and this is, sorry, I'm just being curious on how would that fit when you're in downtown Toronto where the cost of rent is maybe double here or triple? I don't know exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's, and that's the new measure is called the market basket measure actually. And it's to really take into the cost of like a basket of key goods, housing being one of the biggest ones, food being okay. another one for that particular geographic area. Uh, Low-income cutoff does have sensitivities to local costs. Market basket measure will have even more so. So yes, it would be different in a place like Toronto and Vancouver uh, to Calgary, but it would be even more different like Calgary compared to small town uh, rural Alberta, for example. Okay. Okay, going. I've I've heard the the market basket measure and like kind of got it, but didn't really understand exactly. Now, when you put it in context, that makes a lot of sense. Because you're right, your life is a series of goods and services and costs that are going to be different. But it, it all fills up. It all fills up the basket. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, how long have you been at? Uh, how long you've been at Momentum? I have been at Momentum for just over twelve years, and I've oh, been and, in okay, my current cool. role uh, for almost seven. So I moved in um, through a succession process to. Uh, take on the executive director role from our founder, Walter. So Walter. Oh, interesting. That's it. Oh, so you had big shoes to fill. I'm going to, I don't know him, but I'm going to boldly say you had big shoes to fill. Yeah, he was a, he's, Walter was an amazing community leader to go from a startup social enterprise in 1991 to being in the executive director role for 23 years and leading it through to becoming Momentum about 15 years ago. So our name as Momentum is 15 years old. Uh, And he was very well-respected community leader um, an amazing mentor for myself is one of the draws for me to work at momentum was based on what momentum does. I always had a high regard for what momentum does and how it does it, but also the opportunity to work with Walter was a huge draw. So, um, yeah, I'm always grateful for the mentorship I received and I'm just glad over the last seven years, I haven't 
screwed things up too badly. <laughs> I, I appreciate I appreciate the humility. If you don't have it, it'll it'll find you. That's my experience, anyways. <laughs> so curious, the last ten years, you know, you've been there for twelve years, so pretty good optics on kind of what's happening from a Calgary perspective on a low income, and it's pretty easy to be ignorant. And I'm just broad statement to go, wow, this is you know, I know we've had the last five years, six years has been challenging, but and this is a city that had abundant success opportunities. Like I'm not a Calgary, and I moved here, was blown away by the entrepreneurial opportunity. By the, you know, if you can show some value, you can get opportunity here. But yet we still have this persistent problem of people struggling with, you know, the, you know, barely being able to, the, the, the employed, the employed homeless and some of these things. It just seems so out of whack when you look around. And I know the last five, six years has been challenging, but abundantly so, this is a pretty successful part of the world that we live in. So what have you seen over the last, like, you know, take eight years ago when things were quote unquote booming and going great versus now has this problem just gotten worse or has it always been at a certain level that it's just one of the weird dynamics of kind of society? Yeah. So Alberta was one of the lowest levels um, from a poverty standpoint in the country. And that was due to our economic strength and the, the incredibly low level of unemployment that we had for years. However, the level of, people living on lower incomes in Alberta was pretty stagnant for actually quite a few generations. We were right around 10% of our population in Calgary was living on low incomes, uh, right through all of our boom times. Um, and then what was really interesting is there's a there's a really strong connection between economic strength and the levels of poverty. Uh, okay. But there's also an important factor is some of the really effective policies that can reduce poverty. And so when we hit the economic downturn in 2014-2015, we actually, there was some really effective policies that came in around that same time. And the biggest one that had a huge impact on our levels of poverty was the federal government had uh, shifted the Canada Child Benefit, which is a direct income supplement for families living on low income, and the Alberta government created an Alberta Child Benefit. Those two together, we actually reduced the level of child poverty in our province by half. So we went from okay, wow. uh, one of the pr- provinces that had sort of average levels of child poverty, and we actually cut it by half. And Alberta became the lowest province for child poverty in the entire country. Uh, so that was a huge uh, impact on the overall poverty levels, because obviously we know like there's a lot of families and a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that had a big impact, and that was right around 2014, 2015. So when we actually saw the economic downturn, we actually saw poverty go down. But it's because of the child benefit. So the Alberta government, because of some of the fiscal challenges, have actually pulled back on the Alberta part of the child benefit. It still exists, but it's not um, it's it's not quite as um, impactful as it was before. Ro- ro- robust, so, robust as, as it once robust, was. Yeah. So now we're seeing uh, poverty levels. They're starting to increase because of the the uh, sustained sort of economic downturn from 2015 and the child benefits being reduced and now the impacts of COVID. So we are anticipating, uh, and there is some modeling that shows that the poverty levels in our province and in our city will increase um, in the future once we start to get the data. Because uh, the best data is usually from the federal government. Right. And that's always a lagging indicator of like, you're looking back, you're not looking forward, but you can. So interesting, when you talk about government policy versus a booming economy. And obviously that I'm not trying to say they're separate because obviously, you know, provincial coffers get better and there's more abundant, there's more, there's more money to share and more wealth to spread around when the, when the province is doing well. But what I'm hearing is that something like a downturn 
they're intertwined really closely in terms of how the government then responds and acts you know, with their fiscal constraints or not versus just whether there's a strong employment market. And again, you run those two out, they crisscross each other all the way down the line. But what I'm hearing in your world, the government policy plays just as much or a bigger role than if, the, than if there's lots of jobs available just to make it really like, hey, we've got all these open spots. Why can't we get these people to work kind of mindset? Yeah, exactly. It's it's not an either or and mm-hmm. economic and social policy are inextricably linked, just like economic and social development are very linked. And so I, I think a really good example of that um, is like direct income supplementation, like a child benefit. That's mm-hmm. money that goes into the, the households of families living on lower incomes. Well, people that generally live on lower incomes, they tend to have to spend more of the money they receive because they they just don't have as much cushion in their budgets. So as that money now gets spent in the economy, that creates an economic uh, activity because they're mm-hmm. tending to right. spend that money that they receive on different goods and services because they don't have the ability to save as much as a middle or upper income family would be able to save. So that's just an example of like as government puts money in, it then has an economic contributor and it then has a social impact of the family then not being uh, as unstable or potentially even in crisis because of the financial right. stress of not being able to make ends meet. Which I can only imagine has been exasperated through COVID when you've got some of the statistics around the middle to upper income individuals reduce their costs, but maintain their income, which actually allowed them to increase their savings or have more disposable that then they weren't able to spend. So therefore became savings. But if I'm in a lower income situation that oftentimes a lot of those jobs were impeded because of COVID and so you're making less, you're spending the same because cost of living is still there when you're putting, you know, food in, food on the table and a roof over your head. Exactly. That's why I think like we've started mm-hmm. to hear the dialogue around COVID is revealing some of the inequities in our society because there was a bigger impact of COVID on people that were sort of already on the economic edge before COVID. So yeah. we really like the phrase that's become fairly common that, you know, we started to hear early in the pandemic that we were all in the same boat and we were all in this together. But I think it's a much more uh, apt statement to say that we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. I think <laughs> some people are you know, surviving the last year and a half through COVID in sort of a metaphorical yacht, while other people are on a, on a raft, uh, because it, COVID has had a much more significant impact on uh, people that were struggling. And not just from an economic standpoint, but even from a health standpoint, right? Like we've seen the people like the essential workers that don't have sick leaves have to go to work, more likely to get sick. So we've seen the health impacts disproportionately oftentimes on people living on low incomes. And we've seen the economic impacts um, that have been more significant on people oftentimes living on lower incomes. And that's where, as we now think about coming the post-COVID and in the recovery, that's where I do think we have to really pay attention that we've started to hear some projections that it could be more of a K-shaped recovery where people that were already doing well, that were less impacted by COVID could really benefit from the economic recovery and the potential sort of next roaring 20s that may happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people that were already struggling, if we're not careful, could end up struggling into the future. So that's where I think we really have to, as a community and um, as a province and even as a country and even to some extent globally, be really thinking about how do we mitigate the the risk or the impact of having a K-shaped recovery, which really would probably make some of the inequities we're already seeing worse. 
which perpetuates. I really, I really appreciate the perspective and the clarity because I can, I can go back and clearly listen to myself on some episodes that were maybe in April and March and May of last year of the comment of like, well, when have we all been in something together? And very much just blanketing that statement. But to hear you talk about, yeah, we're all in the same storm, but we're maybe in a different, in a different boat. That's a really interesting way to. And it just, it, it, it comes back to something you and I were even chatting about before we push record around the inequality and the polarization that's happening in our world of, you know, like, well, not, not in my world. Like, I don't understand that problem because I'm not having it and how, how important it is to be empathetic to all the broader perspectives. And I think you summed up that really well. We were in the same storm, but we were in different boats. And, you know, I was, I was working with a coach the other day and he talked about, you know, we all experience an event, but the explanation we create post is the individualization and remembering that that's just your explanation, that the other person who was also at that same, unfortunately, COVID event maybe has a very, very different explanation based on their own experience, their own beliefs, what they kind of went into that event with. And it's really easy to think about that or to lose sight of that when you think about, you know, financial inequality and education when you have access to it and not realizing all the people that don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I, I do think that COVID has at least to some degree revealed some of those inequities that were, were already there. Like I, I really do think that inequality, both from a income standpoint and from an asset standpoint really is a, a macro global trend that has been happening across at least the Western world uh, for the last generation plus, we've seen a rise in income inequality and even a greater rise in the asset or wealth inequality. Um, and it was been most prevalent in the U.S. And that's where I really do feel that COVID started to highlight and make people aware of those inequalities. But what's really important with inequality is just as you said that it's our individual experience. I think it's important for us to recognize that inequality does actually impact everyone. So even people on the upper end of the equality scale, when it comes to income, they are impacted by inequality. Uh, There's research that shows that actually like health outcomes, for example, are worse in countries that have higher degrees of inequality and not just the health outcomes of the people living on the lower incomes, but actually the health outcomes of the people at the higher end of the income are even worse. Um, And so it shows that it is an issue that does impact everyone. And I think we're the greatest risk um, for communities and, and Calgary included is if inequality continues to increase, it has a direct impact on polarization, uh, just at a societal level. And I think you see that then in some of the political polarization that can happen. And the U.S. is probably the most obvious example that I think most people would recognize that uh, it has probably the the worst political polarization, at least in the Western world. It's certainly and become more, a little even more fierce the last four years. And yeah, we, 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 we don't we don't need to name names. We, exactly. we all know what the like last four years. It definitely feels like. like it's it has increased in the U.S. and the and the U.S. is uh, from most economic indicators of inequality, it has the highest degree of inequality. So I do think it's something that um, in Alberta and in Calgary we really have to pay attention to because polarization I think is very dangerous, and that spirit of COVID that to some degree it still was something that we all experienced. Like, mm-hmm. even though there is that, there's the difference of how the experience was applied. There's still some common experience there. And the risk factor that it, if that leads to just increased polarization and less shared understanding, I think that's, that can have a huge impact in, at a city level and at a community level. I think I really, 
take it to heart what you said, even from the polarization amongst my own peer group, when you start getting into, and we're not going to go in, we're, we're not going to open this can of worms today. When you get into the vaccine conversation, when you get into the reality of what's actually happening and the conspiracies, like it's interesting how it was unifying at one point, but it actually is becoming incredibly divisive. Now it feels like it, it's, you know, don't talk about, you know, religion or politics or COVID at the dinner table kind of, kind of mindset. It almost feels like it's getting lumped into that. So I really, I get what you're saying where it was a unifying, like, Oh, we're all, we all have the common foe, but now the foe has many different sides and it's being interpreted differently. So when you talk about, well, you got to go, this is an interesting Friday morning. We're going way down the rabbit hole here. This is great. <laughs> when you talk about the role momentum plays and, and getting into logistics of, you know, you guys just had a graduation for your Tech Plus program and you're educating groups of individuals to take on different careers and evolve and better themselves that way. How much of your programming, like from a balanced perspective, would be focused around like education and beliefs and understanding even the income side versus the asset side? Because if you don't get taught that at a certain point in your life, it's a, it's an obscure concept. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, I, It's fair to describe us as a training center or okay. a mini educational uh, organization. Uh, we're not like the big, huge post-secondaries by any means or mm -hmm. uh, like the Bull Valley College uh, type of organization, but we, we are very focused on learning. And so in that spirit of we're trying to connect people that are living on lower incomes to economic opportunities, we're trying to form that bridge and so that there isn't too much of a divide and so that people can access those economic opportunities. And training, education, learning is a key uh, bridge aspect and ensuring that that access to training is possible. And so that's where uh, our training programs, our job training programs, like the Tech Plus program, which is a technology training program, are free. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the participants are able to do the training. For some of our programs, even they're able to access what's called a learner benefit so that while they're in full-time training, they can actually pay for their cost of living um, so that nice. they don't have to, say, go into debt to then do training. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's so critical to be able to provide those training and education opportunities that can really help people move forward in their lives, whether that's being able to boost their income by getting a better job and ultimately mm -hmm. pursuing a career or some of our training and education related to what we call financial empowerment, learning about money and creating the opportunities for people to save so that they can build their assets. It's just so powerful. Um, education is so, so powerful to be able to create opportunities for people and then facilitating that connection to the actual opportunity. So with our programs, like our technology training program, we work very closely with employers so that people can actually have a work experience and then have a much better chance of getting an actual job. Which is so critical. That's sometimes where the world of education I've seen in the past, I think less was what I really like about some of the schools like say where they are so closely related to industry. We all know people that went to school, got their degree and then couldn't get a job after. Like to me, that has to be all part of the deal. <laughs> like that's where I think it's so critical that those relationships are there. So from your guys side, when you talk about you, you started very much as a trades based uh, group, but now obviously moving in and adapting to what the needs are, what's your balance or what's your mix between like technology focused versus physically like hands on the tools kind of stuff um so yeah trades was definitely our initial focus we started doing technology training uh, just over three years ago because we started to okay. identify that there were big opportunities in our future economy for technology so that was then our next um major job area that we focused on so we still do more trades training than technology training um uh -huh. but it's getting pretty close to a balance actually of trades okay and interesting technology that's, training. What I, that's what i was i was curious yeah the trades training also took a 
a bigger hit employment wise with the economic downturn. So we're ne- just now starting to see some of our trade training employment results increase. Uh, we had a successful automotive heavy duty technician grad about a month ago where the employment results were much stronger than they were two or three years ago. So I think that's, we're starting to see sort of some green shoots of economic recovery. Um, okay, but the tech training, uh, we see it as a major priority for us moving forward because that's where most of the job growth uh, the big job growth in Calgary will likely be in the technology field. And so that's where we really want to continue to grow our role in tech training. And certainly that's, you know, there's, there's always this interesting dialogue of like, we have a degree of unemployment, but yet we have the the, the number that's constantly like, we're short 2,500 tech jobs or 3,000 tech jobs. Like it always creates that interesting, like you read the two articles side by side, you're like, there's, where, where's the bridge <laughs> to use your words? Like, where's the thing that crosses over here? So when someone goes through a tech plus program for you, I'm just curious, like, is this a basic, I'm getting into it? Like, how does, what's the barrier in terms of being qualified? Like, is there an application process or I'm getting way into the weeds, but I'm, I'm just really trying to understand, like, how do we get more people off the sidelines? Cause I'm all about inclusion and we need to, we need everybody on the, on the field here to take this, the, to take Calgary forward and like removing barriers is what you guys do. But I'm curious, what, what is the nuts and bolts of actually getting involved and signing yeah, it up for is a course? fairly intensive application process. We actually usually okay. have hundreds of applications for only the, the 12 or so seats in each um, cohort. So people have to go through quite a, a rigorous uh, process because we also want to make sure that we're having folks that fit our goals, that they're living on low incomes. Most are unemployed and eligible oftentimes for EI, and that's because it is a government-funded program. So it's funded okay. through our EI system. Um, so sometimes we are, we're just not able to take people because they're not EI eligible, which that is a, a bit of a challenge as well that we're hoping to address uh, moving forward. Um, so it's pretty rigorous. We also want people to be able to um, succeed in the program. So we're making sure people have the right level of English, for example, that they have to. Uh, so if they need to do some additional English learning, if they're a newer Canadian, then mm-hmm. they'd have, probably have to work on their English before doing our program. So it is a pretty okay. rigorous selection process. And it's so it, is, it is fairly program. specific in terms of oh, what you guys offer and who's yeah, the right fit. Okay, Because people get four technical certifications through the program. So it's a pretty intensive process. The technical training is done by SATE uh, and Bow Valley College. And then we work with industry to provide the work experience and then ultimately a job. And when you mentioned how I think for a long time, maybe our post-secondary system wasn't as strong of connecting people into uh, work experience. There is a huge push across all post-secondaries in Alberta uh, around work integrated learning or work integrated training. And that's the model that we've always used actually for any of our training is work integrated so that the employer is an actual partner in the training program. They should never be, they should never be separate. Like it should be all in all in like it has to be even from the student, it should be that seamless process of navigating through and also setting them up for the best suited skills based on what industry needs in the time. Cause there's, you know, we all know the old jokes of like, Oh yeah, I've got my degree now, please show me how to do the job. And I think that's such an outdated way. And I'm glad to hear that it's moving, that it's not like that. Cause it just doesn't yeah. feel very, didn't feel very practical. in my It mind. is a big, big shift across the entire province um, that all post-secondaries are part of. But you know, there's also a challenge of, it's not just people that are educated in Canada that maybe don't always have the skills that make them empl- uh, employable enough. There's a mm-hmm. huge challenge of people that have education from their home country, but yes. 
don't necessarily have work experience here. So actually a lot of our participants have education in their home country, but have really struggled in the Canadian labor market to work um, in a related field and end up working what we often call as survival jobs, right? Like the, the low yep. wage jobs where you're getting paid. The, but the, the engineer, the engineer who's sweeping floors just as exactly. oversimplified. And so we really hmm. feel that um, that's a benefit of our program as well as supporting because in our technology training program, it's still more than half the people are new to Canada Okay. in the last five years. And it's an opportunity for them to get some Canadian-based education and some training and certifications, but also start to build their network, make new employer connections, uh, and that bridge into employment opportunities in our own local labor market. So that is a challenge that we have in Can- across Canada is that we recruit people to come to Canada based on their economic credentials. That's a huge part of how people are selected in our immigration system. And then when they often come here, they end up getting marginalized. Um, and not always, but quite often they get marginalized from economic opportunities. And so that's part of our, our connection role or bridging role as well is to help a lot of those folks be able to actually utilize the assets and skills that they have. I've, you, you're, you're pulling on a thread for me because I've had a few guests lately that have been talking about the challenges around this. And um, I had uh, Mishak Mwaba from Bow Valley on the show talking about, uh, you know, and he was quite vocal and I appreciated it around like we've got some disconnect where you've got employers that are willing to to take on some of these individuals. You've got schools that are willing to help reskill and micro skill and micro credentialing. But then he put a little bit of a finger at some of the associations that I know are tied into the government in terms of how we regulate things from engineering to uh, things that need to be regulated. And he goes, there's a gap there. Like we're not conversing and we're creating these artificial, these barriers that are, they're based on something valid. But this is a new world, and what are we doing to be able to adapt and and allow individuals to get into our workforce faster where they are needed? Uh, so, any any thoughts on kind of the bigger macro around, you know, are we getting better at it, or is that still just this is the way we've always done it that creates barriers and keeps people out? Yeah, I th- we are, I think, starting to pay more attention to the issue of foreign credential recognition. So, the provincial government um, is developing strategy and policy level responses uh, to foreign credential issue. They're starting to put some, uh, I'd say, a bit more pressure on some of the professional associations. Um, So there is more attention to it. I also feel that sometimes we don't pay enough attention that it's not just about the foreign credential, though. There's sometimes people that come to Canada, they have... Uh, work experience in their home country. They don't necessarily, they're not necessarily a professional though. They're not necessarily the engineer. They're not necessarily the nurse, um, but they do have work experience in their home country. They do have some education in their home country. Um, Technology is one particular area where it's not necessarily as professionalized. You know, there is, it is if you're a software engineer, but there's a ton of jobs in the IT or technology space that are not necessarily like where it's professional and where there's an industry association creating a foreign credential barrier. So there is, I'd say, much more attention around the issue of foreign credentials uh, now than there was 10 years ago. Uh, It was a huge issue that was identified 10 years ago. We were actually part of launching uh, a microloan program specifically to address the foreign credential issue and provide uh, low-interest loans so that people could work on their getting their credentials in Canada, doing additional training, for example, or writing the exams. That's now the largest microloan program in Canada called Windmill Microlending. And it actually started in Calgary. So it's like a 
I think it's a Calgary and Alberta success story. It was originally called the Immigrant Access Fund Loan. Momentum uh, co-launched it with the Immigrant Access Fund Society that has rebranded to Windmill and has gone national. So 10 years ago, when that loan program was still pretty new, the foreign credential issue was just starting to get attention in our country. And it's definitely getting much more attention now. But there is still the issue of... Uh, new Canadians struggling, where it's not just a credentialing issue. It's more just a general economic um, access issue. So much of what I'm hearing is like, it, this isn't new. We're just kind of, we're, we're, we're coming at it again from a different perspective, or it's still here and we haven't resolved it. And then the need state is changing. But a lot of what I'm hearing you talk about, like these are not, these are not new problems that have just evolved in the last 14 months per se. <laughs> no, you think of um, like, wage inequality right like there's always been issues around wage inequality and and low wage work and i think the general arc from a really high level societal perspective is we're probably doing better over time in wage inequality like the most obvious example is it's really not that long ago in the big scheme of things that we had slavery and so we're doing in the last hundred, in the last way better, right? In the last 150 year plus yeah, yeah, totally. span, right? And like, what, we used to not have 1865. Yeah, you think of like then uh, child labor was really common, and like hmm. our employment standards have significantly increased. The idea of a minimum wage in the big scheme of things isn't even that old, and so now we're starting to have discussions. I think societally about like how does a minimum wage fit? What's the right level of minimum wage? As well as what could be the role of basic income for people that maybe can't work or uh, want to pursue an entrepreneurial path, and a basic income can actually be a way to like provide. Uh, some floor to people as they pursue entrepreneurship. So basic income is becoming like a hotter uh, policy topic uh, around the country and really around the world. Uh, And there's about more than 25 basic income pilots happening right now in the United States in different cities across the U S so basic income is becoming like much more prominent than it was uh, 30 years ago. Um, though it was discussed even in the Nixon administration in the U.S., and we ran a big pilot in the in Canada in the 1970s. So again, not a new topic, uh, but becoming more prominent. So a lot of these issues, inequality or poverty, we know they're you know they're they've been around since basically the dawn of civilization, probably. Yeah. But I'd say the general arc we're doing better. But there are some macro trends over the last 30 plus years that inequality is getting worse. And so that's where I think it's up to like all of us as society to really think about what kind of society do we want to live in. And if we want to live in a society that creates opportunities for everyone, then we have to make sure that we're doing the economic activity, the business activity that can help create those opportunities. That's where like, I think we're also seeing a rise of um, businesses being much more engaged in ensuring that their social responsibility is actually part of their business model, not just something they do on the side, um, but that it's actually integrated in how they do business. So we're seeing sort of how business is done uh, differently in lots of ways. And we're seeing, uh, more dialogue around what's the potential policy response to address an issue of inequality. But we have to think about both. It's not an either or. It's not about just economic development and just social development. It's not only what business can do or what only government can do. It really is about what 
can society do that includes businesses being absolutely critical part of our society and what government can do. Yeah, right back to what you said at the beginning, that it, it isn't a standalone or there isn't a, there's, hey, guess what? There's no magic answer. Thinking about the businesses that you interact with, and obviously you have partnerships with different businesses, are you seeing a movement to just more social awareness or the impact that those businesses can have by going, yeah, we're going to very much focus on employing a certain group because we believe that that's what's important to us? Like, are you, are you, are those dialogues you're seeing become more prevalent over the last couple of years? I'm thinking yes. I'm hoping yes. Yeah, <laughs> I would say, I would say definitely. Um, so, We've seen across North America the rise of what's called the B Corp, which is the beneficial corporation. Uh, it's a pretty fast-growing movement where uh, businesses get certified in terms of how they do their business so that it can benefit all of society, both uh, socially and environmentally. And we have a number of B Corps in Calgary, uh, Righteous Gelato, Trico Homes. Um, we have, well, I think, well over 10 certified B Corps um, in Calgary now. And then another uh, local indicator of that rise of businesses really caring about their social and environmental impact as part of their business model is we at Momentum host a B Local network. So B Local YYC, it's a network that's been in existence for about 10 years. Um, and Momentum started hosting it uh, just in the last year. And there's over 300 members of B Local. And all of those businesses are locally owned. Uh, in Calgary, and they are committed to their environmental and social impact of their business. So we describe them as their community-focused businesses because they want to do well as a business and do well for community. And we have a there's a huge range of businesses in Be Local. Some larger, well-established businesses. First Calgary mm-hmm. Financial as our largest credit union in town. Uh, Blush Lane Organic Market, uh, and then smaller, almost uh, startup size businesses, but that are at their startup phase or in their first few years are operating that they want to have social and environmental impact part of how they do business. And have you, have you seen a rise in membership? Like, has, is that trending up? Like, and I, I was talking to uh, Leo Rothschild from CBSR and he talked about kind of all the things they were talking about. And then all of a sudden the last 14 months, like they can't, they can't field the calls that are coming in as it's now that, that sustainability and like social license is becoming like top of mind for almost everybody in every industry now, not just the resource sector, which for a while, I think it got kind of focused on that group. Yeah, no, it's definitely a growth. We've seen growth in the B local membership, and we're seeing also um, a neat diversity in in the type of businesses that are really committed to their social and environmental impact. So, a really neat example is the Allium is a worker cooperative restaurant, and it's a, and they're a member of B local, and mm-hmm. the one of the co founders of the Allium did one of our business training programs, and it's the first worker cooperative restaurant in our city, and so. That's where, like, First Calgary is a credit union. This is a worker cooperative restaurant. Then we have uh, privately owned businesses that are part of Be Local. Um, so it can be a real range, not just of uh, within business. There's also different ways to structure the business and to ensure that the business model has that environmental and social impact. So it's definitely a rising, uh, I'd say, a rising trend, probably across North America and even even globally. And then it, we're experiencing it here in Calgary as well. And a group like the um, Trico Homes created the Trico Foundation, and their goal is to advance social enterprise and social entrepreneurship as a tool to address some of these big um challenges that we face in society and using business activity, whether it's run by, uh, uh, 
as a private business or whether it's run as a cooperative or whether it's business activity done as in a non-for-profit model, which is also right. possible. But the really the core is how can that business have that social impact? And so the the Trico Foundation is a is a key partner in in moving this work forward as well. And for you guys from a funding from a funding model perspective, is it all through partners and through organizations like that versus government, or is it a real blended approach for you guys? Yeah, it's that? really blended. Obviously, obviously it takes money to keep the wheel turning, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like momentum, we are, uh, that's why we describe it as a social profit organization. So we are a not-for-profit organization with charitable status, but we try to really operate as a, more as a, like a social enterprise. So we really work core focus on our social impact and how do we connect uh, people living on low income stack economic opportunities. And that's where a lot of it's on the training side. Some of it's on the business side and how do we work with businesses so that they can create jobs uh, for, for people living on low incomes. That's why we work with uh, the be local network because they're businesses that are all committed to that social impact. And so for us as a business, yes, we have to figure out how to pay the bills. And so we're very diversified from a revenue standpoint. And so uh, we're about 45% government funded. We're about 40% philanthropically funded through the community. United Way is a very important financial supporter of ours, uh, as well as a number of foundations, um, both public and private, uh, and individual donors in the community that invest in our work from a philanthropic standpoint. Then we have some corporate support and a little bit of fee-for-service work as well, where we can oh, generate okay, interesting. Some of our own we go in and you guys do a little bit of consulting and so that's, yeah. that's yeah. to help. So people. we we really try to be diversified. No, I appreciate getting an understanding of your of your model and certainly the the, the larger underpinning of where things are moving and where you guys fit into that. And I love an organization that's been around for thirty years, kind of addressing the same core issue, but also being able to evolve and adapt as it shifts. But but the the the, the sad part is we're still we're still dealing with that fundamental issue of inequality, right? At the, at the end of the day. And we've been, and we've, we've yet to solve it as a society. I think that's a, that's a, that's an over an unfortunate statement to say. And we may never solve it, but we can always work towards improvement. Right. So that's where, uh, actually at the, Tech plus grad just yesterday that we hosted, which was like a huge highlight in my week with having, you know, the 11 or so graduates and more than half have employment in their field and employer partners like Longview Systems being able to participate in the grad. But I shared a quote from Bruce Lee, which uh, was that this is a paraphrase now because I don't uh, I don't want to butcher it probably a little bit. But it was that we don't always necessarily uh, achieve our goals, but goals are important because it's still about what we're aiming for. So that's where I think, you know, we have to know what we're aiming for. And that's for us is about ultimately reducing poverty. Um, and that's, we use the approach of connecting people living on lower incomes or experiencing poverty into economic opportunities. And we do really view it as like, we're trying to be a bit of that bridge between the economic sphere and the social sector. And that's because of our work, everything that we do it's grounded in trying to have that social impact, but everything we do has an economic component to it, whether it's getting a better job, whether it's creating a job for oneself or working with businesses to create jobs for others or to be able to manage and save money. And so it's all about that social impact, but using economic tools. And that's where we do really feel that as a community in Calgary, we have to pay attention to as we move forward, how can our economic development activity ensure that it has a social benefit and has that connection into the social side. And we also feel that the, the social sector, um, so the many valuable not-for-profit and 
charitable organizations or what I sometimes call the social profit sector is connected into the economic activity and that we don't create this artificial divide or, or viewing them as separate, but they're just inextricably linked. I love the concept of bridging the gap and pulling them together because so easy it can be treated as this versus that or, well, that's over here and that's over there. But what I'm hearing, what you guys have done is really kind of pull together and say, well, yeah, let's let's understand what we're trying to accomplish, but then let's pull in some of the levers, which I've heard you reference business so often, as a driver for change and especially small business. Like the, It's so easy to get overlooked because the big enterprises get the headlines, but there's so many small businesses and so many amazing, like someone gave me a stat yesterday and, I, and now I'm not quoting it properly, but then number of new entrepreneurs that had been minted in the last 14 months, it was a staggering number. Like it was so big, I almost kind of didn't, it didn't register. And that was just in Canada. They were talking about the opportunity for those individuals to kind of be empowered to change their stars, if you will. That's a huge, to me, that business has got a big underpinning on the way forward, but we need to work together. And that's often where I think we've drifted apart, <laughs> if, if I'm going to speak broadly. Yeah. And that's where for us in our history, we have about 25 year history now of working with people living on low incomes or struggling in the labor market to create a create their own job really and and at times create jobs for others by starting a business and we really feel that like entrepreneurship um can work for a lot of people uh and it's been really neat to see some of the stories of where people have been struggling and then the business not only does it start to create more economic benefits for them and then their family. But at times, some of those businesses have been able to hire other people. So then it's starting to have that broader ripple effect in the community. And um, we've used micro business loans now for about 25 years to help capitalize some of those businesses. And we've done about three million, just over $3 million in capital in that time. And it's amazing how a loan of under $10,000 to help someone get their business going, the huge impact of that in the community that, uh, Generally, we have usually around 80 active micro-business loans in our portfolio, and those loans create over 110. Last year, we had over, I think it was 117 jobs created in the community, and that's both for the entrepreneur and then for people that they've hired. So it's, um, yeah, it's a, a micro-loan can make a really meaningful big difference when it comes to entrepreneurship. And then that entrepreneurship has that ripple effect in the community uh, and is so key to our economic prosperity in, in our city. I can't tell you how much I love the fact that entrepreneur isn't a dirty word anymore. When, you know, when you and I were growing up and I maybe we won't get into age, but if you told your guidance counselor or the metaphorical guidance counselor that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, you kind of got sent to a remedial program, right? If like, come on, get a real job and do the, go and follow, get a career. It's so interesting. I love the rise of the entrepreneurship culture and mindset and just the, 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 the accessibility that comes with the concept of being an entrepreneur. I think that's amazing and I love it. I'm biased. I'm I'm heavily biased. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's also neat to see like the rise of like social entrepreneurship, right? That like now that social entrepreneurship or the social enterprise language is um I remember you know, 10, 15 years ago, like that was pretty under-recognized language, right? It was like, <laughs> oh, what's that? Like you're putting the word social and entrepreneurship together. And and now it it's not that uncommon. And the Haskian School of Business at UC has a center for social entrepreneurship that's uh was funded and supported by the Trico Foundation. And and so we can see that that rise of social entrepreneurship. It just speaks to that trend of businesses wanting to do their business differently and have that bigger impact uh, uh, both socially and environmentally as part of their business model. Well, I also, 
like that it breaks down that, you know, capitalism, it can often be be put in this like as the enemy kind of side of it, but it's all, it's like everything. It's all depends how you use it <laughs> and what you use it, what you use it to create. Uh, Jeff, yeah, great. Really important yeah. point. Like the economics is a, is a tool and it's, but we always, I think at times we mix up ends and means. And <laughs> so economic activity is a means. It's a tool to ultimately like, what do we want to achieve and what's our goal at a societal level. And that's where, you know, ultimately, uh, maybe a little Pollyanna, but I think uh, a society where as many people as possible, everyone ideally has the opportunity to achieve prosperity. That is what uh, we aim for at Momentum. Our vision is that all Calgarians would be able to have a sustainable livelihood and then contribute to their community. And so I think keeping the end in mind is so important. Nothing about that sounds like a bad idea, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> back to you. I really like you said about, you know, it's not disconnected. If we've got a, a, a group that's been marginalized, don't think that it's not going to affect all the way up and down the kind of the echelon of society. And you're not excused from it because that's not your world or that's not, you know, what you're associated with. We're, we're all on this, on this, on this ride together, which I, I do appreciate. Yeah. I think, I think we're embracing that more than we ever have before, even as we become more polarized. Like it's, it's, it's a real interesting, so many different rabbit holes we can go down with this, this conversation, but I, re- I really appreciate learning about momentum because again, my ignorance, as I self-proclaimed, did not know about you guys and what you're doing and really impressed with the role and more part of your philosophy. I love how you're bolting it all together and not treating it, treat, treating it as this versus that. It's like, no, no, this is together. And this is our model that allows us to do that. So kudos to you guys for that. And clearly this is a 30 year, nothing's happening by accident. I appreciate you guys have architected this and are constantly evolving with the needs of our city. That's awesome. Yeah, we really try to focus on our sustainability as an organization and um, and we're always open to evolving. So like a big thing for us um, pre-COVID even was like, how do we use technology to do our work, expand our reach, uh, potentially uh, impact more people? And so we started really trying to pursue how would we use technology more and then COVID just massively accelerated it so the example that we were working on pre-COVID when we started when we identified that we wanted to really embrace the use of technology was we wanted to take some of our savings work and use technology so we could increase the access and potentially reach more people because we have a long history of working on savings uh, with folks because we do really recognize that for people living in low incomes for it to really be a sustainable way that they can kind of move out of poverty and do well into the future. It can't only be about increasing income. It also has to be about how they can build their savings. And um, we love the quote of without incomes, people can't get by, but without assets, people can't get ahead. So we have this long history, 20 years of offering savings incentive programs, where as people are learning about money and they start saving their money, we boost their savings with a match. And that creates the incentive for their own savings. And it's a pretty powerful tool. And we have really good evaluation results that show that in those programs, people start saving and they keep saving after the program because they've, they've built the habit now of savings. Well, it's awesome programs. We've had um, people have some life-changing experiences. We've had over now 160 people move from living on pretty low incomes to becoming a homeowner where we've helped people actually buy their first home. However, we really only worked with about 150 to 200 people a year. 
And we recognized that if we could use technology, maybe we could reach a lot more people. And we were inspired by an organization somewhat similar to us in the Bay Area that kind of did similar savings and center programs, but switched onto using technology. So before COVID, we started developing uh, an online savings app. And we partnered with a fintech, a Canadian fintech based out of the Maritimes. And that went live last year during COVID. Uh, and it's called the Momentum Savings Challenge on the Cuber app. Works pretty simply that when someone signs up on the app, they get a little micro boost to their own savings. The goal is that at the end of a 10-month period, people will have $500 in emergency savings. And we know that $500 may not sound like a lot, but it has a huge impact on reducing financial stress. And there's actually really good research that $500 in emergency savings reduces the risk of eviction significantly and reduces the risk of having to take out a high-cost loan, like a payday loan, to make ends meet. So we launched that app in 2020, and we're excited about the progress so far. We have uh, well over 200 users on the app in the first few months since it's gone live, and they collectively have uh, over $100,000 now in savings on the app. That's awesome. But then COVID just forced us to massively accelerate our use of technology. So we've uh, really focused on how can we actually do our learning and our training fully online. And even the Tech Plus grad yesterday, that group was almost entirely online for their learning. And then it was a virtual grad yesterday. So that's where we see huge opportunities in the future for more blended learning approaches that can really enable access and still provide a high quality learning or training experience. So I just really feel that technology is such a critical part of our work at Momentum and how we evolve as an organization, but it's so key for our whole community that we can leverage technology as best as possible to support economic prosperity for for hopefully as many people as possible. No, I can't even, you know, if you think about the last 14 months, like the the basics of internet access, you know, like the inaccessibility and, you know, you and I have talked about the future disenfranchised, a quote from Jim Gibson from SATE around how do we make sure everybody's included when you get down to the speed of your internet connection being something that can hold you out of society. It's, it's very powerful when we start to think about what are essential services now and what are going to set the, what's that floor that we have to put under everybody so they at least can then take that next step forward. And, you know, internet and access and bandwidth is, is never become more of much more of a, you know, equivalent to keeping the lights on uh, when it comes to essential services over the last year. But Jeff, I feel you and I can go down multiple more rabbit holes. This has been an excellent conversation. You've opened my mind as not only some concepts, but more importantly to an amazing service that's being offered in the city. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you, to reach out, to kind of take the next step in getting in contact? Yeah, the best way I would say is momentum.org. Just go to our website. Um, we have all of our program information on our website and then just a call. So our general uh, line is right on our website and people can call and have um, and can ask about the programs. And then we also have some programs that are really available to anyone in Calgary. So part of our um, COVID story of using technology is we've taken all of our core money management content and it's available fully online through our website and it's available on demand. So people can do those money management workshops anytime, anywhere. And it doesn't matter uh, if living on low income or not, like it's good content for anyone. And so, you know, we want people living on low incomes to be able to access that content, but really there's so many people in our city, um, 
that don't think enough about how they relate with money. And so one of our workshops is on consumerism as an example. So it starts to get you (laughs) thinking about like, how do you spend money uh, and how does our sort of consumer culture impact uh, our spending decisions? So those are available on our website uh, under the money management tab. And so I'd say just for people to check out our website and probably the most common way people hear about us is actually word of mouth. So that's where I really just uh, appreciate this opportunity to share a bit more of the momentum story, but uh, people that do our programs tell their friends, family about our programs. And that's oftentimes how people find out about us. So spreading the word organically is what we uh, generally, what we do. And when we, uh, I, we, I do love that we live in a big, small town and things do get around that way. And I would take advantage of that exactly even how you and I met, but Jeff, thanks for coming on the show or happy to, happy to tell your story and, and get it out there. And I look forward to crossing paths again. Thank you, sir. That was great. Yeah. I really appreciate it, Tyler. Thanks. 